Well, hello, everybody. This is Jim Patton, your host of the MOH podcast. And so we're here with the Ministry of Helps podcast for the week. We have a new tape by Winky. Uh, this one is um, a little bit newer than the ones I've been doing. Um, clues in the tape tell me that this was probably done around 1980, um, which is newer than the ones from the early 70s, but it's still an old tape, and we had some problems with the tape. There was a few spots where I couldn't really clean up the sound, so um, you'll have to put up with a few inaudible sections. Uh, I'm going to try here, as I as I mix down this final thing, I'm going to try to bring up some of the levels. Uh, there were some level inconsistencies, I think. I don't know whether he uh, got farther away from the microphone or what, what actually happened, but there were some balance uh, problems too. But um, the only thing besides that that I can mention is during this tape he mentions something called the SLA. And for those of you who might not know what the SLA was, which is probably a lot of the younger folks, uh, it was the Symbionese Liberation Army. And they were uh, kind of an American left-wing revolutionary um, kind of domestic terrorist group in the mid-70s, 73, 74, 75, around there. And uh, they were a group that they, they robbed banks, they murdered people, they did other acts of violence, and they became most famous. They became internationally famous when they kidnapped heiress Patty Hearst, whose father was the uh, owner of the, the Hearst newspapers. He just mentions that in passing. It's no big deal. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and get started with this. This is a, a, a one of two parts um, that is, uh, and I believe I've got two more coming after this that might have been like the next day or something like that. But the first one is called uh, Four Fundamental Needs. There's, you know, he's going to cover two of them in this one, two of them in the next one. And these have to do with just human nature and uh, what people need to survive in society. So with that, we'll get started, and here's Winky. Through a study that I think will cover the broadest possible spectrum of uh, needs we have here, I want to just ask you this question. If you had known in 1950 what would happen in the 1960s, and you were a Christian, how would you have prepared for the 1960s? How would you have got your heart ready? What would you have done? I want to describe for you what I believe may be the last, the final, the ultimate uh, philosophy that will rule not only the Western culture, but I believe the consciousness of the whole world before Jesus comes. And in these next two days, we're going to explore what I'll call the new consciousness. It's a totally uh, new way of looking at the whole of the world, and I believe it's the final demonic philosophy that will be put together before Jesus returns. This thing is so important and so significant that Theodor Rojak, the man who did the making of a counterculture, such a a brilliant analysis of the first counterculture, the first whole hip subculture that began in the Western world, has completed a book called Unfinished Animal. It was just done in 1978, 77, and uh, this is what he says. Um, we can discern through all these starry-eyed images of the Aquarian age filled with wonders and a transformation of the human personality and progress 
which is of evolutionary proportion, a shift of consciousness fully as epoch-making as the appearance of speech or the tool-making talent in our cultural repertory. And what he's saying is this, that that which is coming down on the world today is as significant as the appearance of speech or the invention of tools. And it is a transformation of human personality and human consciousness that is as significant as the appearance of language and the making of tools. Now, language uh, is the ability to communicate, and all of our communications media is based on that. And tool-making gave us the rise of the whole of our technological civilization. So what he's saying here is that we are faced with a, a whole new way of looking at life that is a quantum leap over anything that has ever happened in human history before. And that is taking place in your day. So if you'd like to head up, uh, we'll call this the coming counterculture or the, the new consciousness. And uh, I'll give you a name for this time goes on. But I want to begin by looking at four fundamental needs uh, that we have, that God designed us to have. The more we study life, the more we study the universe in which we live, the less and less the universe we live in appears to be like a machine. And the more and more it looks like one great idea. God has, according to the scripture record, spoken into existence the universe just by the word of his command. He spoke and it became real. Now I want you to write something down first. It's very important to know about the devil. Satan is a copycat. I have a nephew who is of that age where he delights to trick adults with tricky questions. And you ever remember that age where you ask dumb riddles? Why did the chicken cross the road? was always the first one. You know, when is a door not a door? All these heavy-duty questions. Well, he comes up and he asks you questions like Abraham Lincoln's one. How many legs does a dog have if we think of his tail as a leg? And you go, well, five. And he goes, no, four. Thinking his tail as a leg doesn't make it a leg. Or uh, three frogs sat on a log. One thought he'd jump off. How many were left? And you go, well, two. And he said, no, thinking isn't doing. Now, it's that kind of thing. You have to go into linguistic analysis and all kinds of stuff to even find out what these kids are talking about. Because they love tricking adults, see? Because adults must be smarter and they come up and they give these things. Well, he said to me a couple of years ago, there were two cats floating down a river on a log. And one jumped off. How many were left? And I thought about this for a few hours because I wanted to be very careful. <laughs> he got me this time before and... and uh, if he said, thought he'd jump off, I would have got him, because he got me twice before. And, uh, but he didn't. He said, one jumped off, and I, I couldn't see any way out of that. I analyzed it logically and applied Hegelian dialectics to it and tried everything, and it just stood. Nothing would change. So I said, well, uh, uh, one, one, one. And he said, no, none. He said, how in the fact did you get none? 
He should because the other one was a copycat. Now, I hate kids like that. But you must know this, and it's a very important thing, that the devil is a copycat and that nothing he does is ever original. Everything Satan has ever done that has been effective has been a copy or a perversion of a divine original. And the greatest and strongest and most powerful cults and concepts and principles and demonic philosophies that are loose in the world are counterfeits of a divine original. So whenever you see something that begins to capture the imagination of people that obviously has demonic roots in it, then look for the real. The devil is a master at this because he knows that God has designed people in a certain way. Now it seems like when Satan fell, there are actually three archangels, apparently, in Scripture, these three we know of, Michael, Michael was in charge of the power systems in the universe. Whenever there's a war now, Michael heads it up. Then there was Gabriel. Gabriel, or Gabby for short, was, uh, seems to be the one in charge of communication. We have rumors of them blowing trumpets to announce the last, uh, you know, the resurrection and stuff like that. He's a communicator. And then there was Lucifer. And Lucifer, seems to be in charge, or seems to have been in charge, in heaven, tip and wisdom. So when he fell, taking one third of the angels with him, which by the way were not robots. The angels are not robots, they have free choice. They are intelligent beings and they have free choice. The reason why I say that is because so often people say, well, the angels are different from humans, because humans have free choice and angels don't. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible calls the angels that fell uh, the angels which sin. You cannot sin if you don't have free choice. And it calls the angels that remain, not the innocent angels or the naive angels, but the holy angels. A holy person is a person who, having faced temptation has turned God's way and stuck with it. So now we have one third of the angels of heaven fallen, then we have the whole world of the demonic that is very real, and we'll look at uh, this in some detail. And then we have two-thirds still remaining faithful to God, and it's interesting that the angel over the, over the uh, mercy seat, there were two of them facing each other. Now, the third is gone. There's only two face each other. So this person, when he fell, Satan, the most, the Bible calls him, he feels up to some perfect in wisdom. When he fell, he took with him a lot of the secrets of the universe. He knows how the universe is put together. He knows how God made man. He knows how your life is constructed. He knows how your psychological makeup is designed. He knows all of that total energy, chemical, biological, psychological, physical, and spiritual system, which is your personality and your body, is made and put together. And so he knows how to pervert. And C.S. Lewis, that rare genius, uh, who's probably been quoted more often than any other Christian in the last century, uh, recognized this in mere Christianity, where he said, uh, under the chapter, The Invasion, uh, it is, uh, the devil is a fallen angel. It is a real recognition of the fact that evil is a parasite, not an original thing. If you wanted to give some descriptions of what evil it is like, it's like mushrooms. It feeds on 
other things. It's like cancer. It takes from the life to build that which ultimately dies. And uh, it could, all of those things would be a good uh, description of the perversion that is satanic. Now, I'm going to give you four needs. And to make you a simple promise, if you do not find these four needs in Jesus Christ, you will go somewhere else to have them met. And the reason why you will go somewhere else is because you have turned away from Christ himself. These four needs cannot be satisfied by anybody else in their fullness and their originality, except in God, not even in Christians, not even in the Christian church. You will find these needs met only in Christ. If you do not go to Jesus for these, you will be forced into some other alternative. And I'll promise you, within less than two years' time, you'll be right out of the Christian church. Now, here are these four. The first one is one that's very, very obvious, and yet one that is so fundamental to what we'll call spiritual survival. Love. Now, it is impossible for human society to exist without love. It is fundamental to our survival spiritually, that a man or a woman feels accepted and cared for and loved and needed and appreciated. And uh, we have a series we did in Lausanne some time back, not only the series I'm giving you, which is also in video, but also one called Jesus Meeting Human Needs. And we talked about the need to be needed and the need to be safe. And uh, nobody in this place ever has come into existence in the world saying, I don't really care if anybody needs me or not. Um, I don't care if anybody loves me. I don't care if anybody ever accepts me. We all have a desire to be accepted. We do the craziest thing sometimes to be accepted. Um, when I was a little kid, I, I had a lot of friends at school. Not that many, but I had a few. And one guy was, you know, he was the epitome of all that was marvelous in a high school guy. He was, you know, handsome. He looked like Robert Redford and you know, Paul Numinous and everybody all rolled up into one and he was, he was the top athlete in the school and he was very smart and he always got A's in class and, you know, he was a good friend of mine and I hated him because he was just so, so good, man, and you, you can't really compete with people like that. So I did crazy things to be accepted. I had the dubious record of being a person who had the second highest number of canings in our school. See, we get canes. In New Zealand, we have capital punishment for anybody who disobeys. And uh, the teachers sometimes have glass cases with canes of various caliber and bore all, uh, you know, all on the thing, and they unlock it and take it out. And <laughs> Very interesting place, New Zealand. But anyway, uh, I do crazy things to be accepted. When you're a skinny kid and your ears stick out like ping-pong paddles and... You know, your hair looks like an explosion in a mattress factory. Then you do the strangest things for people to take notice of you. And I know a lot of kids get into trouble just plain because nobody's ever accepted them or cared for them or loved them as they are. I know church kids sit in church and think, well, I haven't murdered anybody yet. Nobody's taken any notice of me. Maybe I should backslide for a few years and then the Women's Missionary Council will pray for me. See, have you ever heard this? Come in here, Joe Blow. He's a church kid. He grew up all his life in church and never did anything wrong at all. Come and listen to this man. You really need to hear his testimony. It doesn't happen. We usually put up, you know, come here, Jack Pussy Sacks. 
who killed 15 million people, you know, and is now saved, and better watch out, he will backslide in the middle of this evening. We, that's, we give attention to the bizarre, uh, this media-orientated society, you know, the SLA gets publicity until they get poor ratings and then they're dropped. So we, we're crazy. We, we do not honor what God honors, but God says that, that he is going to honor people that nobody has ever heard of. There's going to be special places of honor in God's kingdom. And uh, he says, take heed, you do not your arms before men. But when you pray, you enter into your closet, and your heavenly Father, which sees in secret, shall reward you openly. There were a bunch of people in Jesus' day, Pharisees who stood out and sang, and they prayed more than anybody else, and you could, you could count how many hours they were out there praying. Jesus said, they do this to be seen as men. I tell you, they have their reward, and that is to be seen as men. That's it. But love, we all need love. And uh, would you like to take a guess on how many songs have been written in the last 25, 30 years on this theme? It would not surprise me if over 75 or 80% of the songs in the charts from month to month had something to do with either that theme or perversion of it or loss of it or the need for it. Now, why is this? Because we cannot survive as a society without love. God has designed us like that. You are made to be cared for. You are made to be accepted. And people are crazy. You know that little old lady with a bun and a hairy legs and tennis shoes with a Bible as large as that piano top that sits in the front row going, Amen, Amen. And everybody's saying, Oh, she's a bit weird, you know. You're probably demon-possessed. Look at those hairy legs. She uh, um, just may be a person who desperately needs somebody to accept her. That's why she does such weird things. Hallelujah! You know, it's called, somebody love me. What weird things do you do to be loved? I know some of the weird things I did. Well, the scriptures tell us that this is the mark of the Christian. It is the one single evidence of divine life that God accepts as a criteria of whether you really become a Christian. And would you like to write these down, please? John, 5, John 13, verse 35, does not say this. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have Bible studies one with another. It does not even say, by this shall all men know you are my disciples, if you go witnessing door to door one with each other. It does not even say, that by this shall all men know you are my disciples if you pray one with another. This is what it says. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have loved one towards another. And anything in the Christian life is excusable, lack of, lack of intelligence, God can help you. But lack of love is inexcusable. It is a sign of a Christian. It is a mark of a Christian. You are... You have perfect liberty in the Christian life to disagree with people, but you do not have liberty to not love them. Now, let me help you out here, because when we say the word love, immediately people get all kinds of funny ideas. We know that in Greek there's at least about eight different derivatives of love, but I'll give you the simple one. 
This is a special word, and we'll come back to this word in a minute. And then there is this word, and then there's this word, and then there's this word. Now, putting these, this one here, phileo, or phileo, depending on which emphasis you put on the right syllable, whether you come from Havad or Oxford. Phileo is the, is the word which means friendship, love. Friendship. And I have a funny feeling that that is very neglected in society today. Friendship. Just uh, a, lot of, a lot of girls are driven into sexual immorality because they have no boyfriends. And I think they'd need less boyfriends if they had more boyfriends. And the same with guys. A lot of guys would be able to relate a lot better if they had more girlfriends rather than girlfriends. We don't need so many girlfriends and boyfriends. We need girlfriends and boyfriends. And that friendship is being sucked out of the heart of society. See it in disco music. You know, it's just loot, let me burn you and move on to somebody else. Now, what we need is a restoration of simple, ordinary friendship. And that's such a natural, normal thing. As the culture becomes perverted, becomes isolated and cut off from each other, then this real friendship is a thing of the past. Now, God uh, invented friendship, part of his design, but this love we speak about is not just friendship. In New Zealand, uh, when I first got saved, I was uh, blessed to run into a group of kids who really loved each other. And it was so much fun. We went out together. We did things in a huge mass. There were 80 of us. We went out all at once. We'd go and preach on the streets. We'd, we'd get finished. And we'd go out to eat together. We'd go to a restaurant. We'd all hold hands and sing grace in the restaurant. And then, because uh, we were usually there last, we'd help the waitresses clean up after us and put the chairs up on the table. And we'd help them wash the dishes. And there went bananas over us. And they put Christian records in the jukebox. And, when we had people, special people who could sing from overseas, because none of us could, um, they'd pull a cord out of the jukebox and they'd say, we got some special guests and they're going to sing, and they'd sing to the whole rest. We had a great time. A couple of little waitresses got saved, the manager still a close friend. And, um, it was fun. If you came to our place in the early days and uh, you were a girl, you were initiated immediately. We'd fill the tub up with water, Cold water and you're thrown in, clothes and all. That was baptism into the Pratney family. From that time on, you were part of the family. It was a lot of fun being around in those days. And uh, I think that's missing today. And I've noticed something about really godly people. The closer you get to God, the more normal you become. Because sin is abnormal. And uh, you have this weird idea. If a person's really close to God, he <laughs> You know, that is not true. I have lived with and spoken with and shared with some of the God's choicest men and women. I'll tell you one thing I know about them. They are common as an old shoe. They really are. Now, you might see them under the anointing, delivering the word of God, and you falling out of your chairs in conviction. But if you live with them, you'll know how ordinary they are. Joy Dawson can preach a four-hour sermon that will have you gasping for breath and digging holes in the ground. 
But if you're out with her on the street, she might just give you a race down to the thing or turn a cartwheel for no reason at all except that she's in love with God. Love. That's friendship. Then Doggy, this one here, is just the old comfortable love. He's, I love these shoes, man. I've had them for 18 years. You know that? I love my dog. He's been around for 25. You know that? That's the love of comfortable things. And uh, this word love, love one another, is not just friendship, nor just be comfortable one with her. No, that's a neat thing to have. Is it nice to be comfortable with somebody? So you don't have to think, oh, it's just, you can just be comfortable with it. Eros, of course, is sexual or physical love. There's nothing wrong with sexual or physical love, providing it is within God's guidelines. When I was in Australia some years back, having a crusade, somebody got a hold of one of my little books, it's called Doorways to Discipleship, which he wrote for young Christians, meaning young spiritually or young physically, geared at about 12 up. A lot of pastors wrote and said, oh, I really enjoyed that book more than your first one. I didn't have the heart to tell them who it was written for. But anyway, I was there, and this newspaper editor, one of his guys, got hold of Doorways to Discipleship and wanted to give me an interview. So I went up there, the three-story building, and uh, we're looking out of his window, and he opens up this Doorways to Discipleship, and he says, uh, I've been reading your book. And I said, oh, yeah. And he said, I've been reading the section here on sex. I said, I thought you would. And he said, well, you know, uh, I've been reading, that's quite funny, really. I said, I think so. He said, yeah. Um, you really believe this? I said, yes, you do. He said, um, he said, are you aware that this is the 20th century? I said, I was aware of that. And uh, he said, don't you think this is a little old-fashioned? I said, yes, it is. So I thoroughly confess, really confess that, really admit it. Yes, it is very old-fashioned. And I looked out downstairs, it's three stories up, down there's traffic moving below in the street, and I said, there's an old-fashioned law older than both of us called gravity, but if I push you out of this window, you'll still die. Because just being old doesn't make it wrong. There's some old things we need to fix it. And one of them is God's guidelines in morality. Now, Eros... It's not in itself a bad thing. But today, eros has been made the major thing of what love is. We'll look at this in a minute. Eros is simply physical or sexual attraction. That's what eros is. It's not used in the Bible, but in Greek culture, eros was the dominant word. There are equivalents of eros used in Hebrew. Um, but it's sexual attraction or physical attraction. There are some kinds of people that are more attractive to you than others. Some of you girls like tall, dark, and repulsive guys and, and stuff like that, and uh, you know, uh, some of you like short, fat, and blonde people. You know, there's just different, everybody has a different idea. Now, the reason why this ought not to be the dominant thing is because you can't marry everybody that you like. Maybe about eight million people like that. It's a bit rough running your household. <laughs> so, there are a lot of people that we naturally like better than others. I have certain preferences for certain kinds of people in terms of the kind of people that I really just enjoy being with. Then there are other kind of people I do not naturally enjoy being with. I won't tell you what they like, lest you fit into the category. But, you know, there are 
You know the kind of people that go, ho, 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 and belt you on the back and just look like three vertebrae, uh, the large, horsey, large, ho, 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 ho. You know, there are people like this that really do not turn me on. So um, that's another form of love. And that, of course, was dominant in Greek civilization. We just say this. The word that God uses when he says that you love one another is this word here. A unique word, a very unusual word, a word in fact rescued from an obscure family of Greek words which the Christians used to describe a love that nobody in all of Greek philosophy had ever come up to. Agape is a strange word, so I'm going to have to try and give you a definition of it so you understand what God means when he says love one another. Agape, first of all, if I tried to give you a simple one-word equivalent, which is sometimes translated charity, for instance, in the King James Version, or love, none of these exactly fit what agape is. The closest two-word definition comes from a man like Charles Finney, in which he called it disinterested benevolence. The trouble with us today is we don't think very much and we don't know what words mean. So disinterested benevolence, if I said love is disinterested benevolence, probably our first reaction looking at that would be, well, that means somebody doesn't care a hoot and gives to charity. Now, that's really what we think when we look at, what does disinterested benevolence mean? Well, let me give you a thing. This is not uninterested. This is disinterested. It means having no self-standard motive. No selfish motive. Say a man comes to town and he, uh, he finds out that somebody who lives next door to him is a widow and is very poor and doesn't have any food. So one day he knocks on the door and he says, look, I bought you a box of groceries. Well, that may be disinterested. He says, oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And he says, now, of course, I'm running for mayor in town and I wonder if you would sign this little petition so that all people like you could have things like this. This is not disinterested. You understand? Having no personal space. Nothing you can get out of what you do. That's disinterested. The second word, benevolence, comes from two Latin words, bene and vole. And vole is to choose, and bene is good. So very literally, benevolence means to choose good. So, this word love, in the simplest possible form, is to, without any selfish motives, to choose the good. Now, I want to give you a definition that's a little bit longer, but it's not at all as long as, for instance, Gerard Cattell, who is the... His, he has a set of volumes, about 10 or 12 volumes thick, about this fat each one, you know, and uh, it's called a Theological Dictionary of New Testament Words, and even saying it breaks your jaw. He has a study on agapeo here, and the agape, which is over 40 pages long of what this word means. There's no way I'm going to be able to just say, hey, this is what it means. But at least I can give you a crack at it. The best single definition we have of agape, in the sense of choosing to give your life to God and living in a Christian way, would be this. 
an unselfish choice for the highest good. And that's a simple sentence. Now let's add a couple more things clearly defined. Of God and his universe, that's everything that he's created according to their real and relative values or related values. Now, let me explain each bit of it. Agape means an unselfish choice. That, that means without self-interest, it is a choice, it is not a feeling. For the highest good, it puts God first and then his universe according to their real related values. It treats God first because he's the most important. It treats uh, human beings secondly because they are next important. It treats mosquitoes according to their real relative value. On this scale, if a mosquito comes to attack me and suck my blood out, that one millimeter vampire, like this, it is not murder for me. <laughs> ha! 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 See, it's, um, this, it's, it still accords with the definition of love to execute a mosquito trying to take a man's blood. Because the mosquito's life is not as valuable as mine. The Bible says, whosoever sheddeth man's blood, <laughs> blood shall also be shed. Let me give you a dumb example here. Uh, if the Lone Ranger and Silver fall into a waterfall, and they're going over the edge, and you can only save one, according to the Lord love, you ought to save, even if you're a horse lover, the Lone Ranger, because a man's life is more important than his animal. You understand? Even if you like horses and you think the Lone Ranger backslips, you still should. You still think you still should choose man. And you should put God before man and his value because... His is the highest value. His is the highest good. All right, now that is just a very, very basic definition of agape. But what you ought to know is this. In the Bible, it is possible to give that highest good to something else other than God. To make as your highest good some other thing, some other system that is not God. And that is why in the Bible you will see this word. Love not the world. Do not, and that's the word of God says, do not give your highest good, do not give your highest choice to that secular system around you because it hates God. The word of God says, then, could be used of other things other than Christ. But God says, you love me, put me first, because in that choice, all other value systems are inherent and according to their proper order. Now, just looking at this briefly, it tells us a couple of neat things. The first neat thing it tells us is, you can love somebody you don't even like. Isn't that a relief? You can love somebody you do not even like. Now, does that sound strange? Some people think that the closer you get to God, 
the more you enjoy pain. Somebody comes up to you, are you kissing me? Yes, I am. Got my Bible? Didn't the Bible say, the guy smite you on one cheek, you should turn the other cheek? Mm-hmm. Well, good. Pow! See? Now, people think, if I really love this man, I will enjoy this. <laughs> so the guy smacks you on the cheek, you go, ow! Oh, ooh, wait a minute, this isn't Christian. I'm supposed to love it. Now, the Bible doesn't say you have to enjoy it. It just says you have to choose his highest good. It doesn't say anything at all about your feelings. So love is not primarily a feeling. And that's tremendous relief. It means I do not even have to feel good about the people I love. If I make the right choice, Feelings often will follow. Let me give you an example. When I worked in New York in Teen Salem, we went, spent a lot of time in the Bowery. The Bowery was kind of the uh, wino city of uh, New York. And Bowery is just human dereliction. There's just a sea of, of winos lying around, drinking methylated spirits, just a mess. Well, I'm walking along the road and I see this man. He's obviously a businessman. He has expensive suit that is now, you know, all covered in vomit. And he's got flies crawling across his face and he's just passed out and he's got in his hand empty bottle of, of, of methylated spirits and he's just lying there, passed out. Somebody's come and stolen his shoes off him while he's there. Now, when I look at this guy with vomit all over him and flies, what do I feel? Nothing. My feelings would say, oh, pass by on the other side. But if I make the choice, because God commands me to love, I can lift that man up and bathe his face, and I'll tell you a funny thing happened. When you make the choice, I can find the feelings following until I can actually treat that man as if he was my own father, whom I love very much. So love is a choice. But it involves more than a choice. It involves everything that comes with an intelligent choice. Let's say this then. Because it has this condition in it, love is intelligent. It is not blind. You do not fall into biblical love. You choose intelligently. Let me fall. I fell in love. I fell in love. So you can see how different this is from the world's picture of love. world's picture of love is if you turn me on, I'll turn you on. You know? If you do, you do my thing, I'll do your thing. That's world's picture of love. It is um, absolutely unlike this, which is you can love somebody who's not lovely. You can love somebody who's simply, dumply, ugly, uh, smelly, totally... You can love somebody like this. You can love the husband who has not bought back what you asked him to. You can love a wife who's just dyed your shirt purple. You can love children that are brats. With this. You can love brothers that are rats. With this. You better. Because this is the test of the Bible system. Scripture is very clear. 
If you do not love your brother, you do not have the love of God in you. If you can't love your brother whom you see, how can you love God whom you cannot see? There's an acid test. Do you really love each other? If not, you do not belong to Jesus Christ and you need to. What does that say about racial prejudice? What does that say about economic prejudice? What does that say about a whole bunch of prejudices go on in the Church of Jesus Christ today? It says it is antithetical, that it is a damnable thing, and that in a revival of genuine Christianity it would be eliminated. Not only is something unnecessary, but it's something positively sinful and damning. All right, give you one more scripture. John 14 and verse 15, John 14 and verse 15, and also verse 21. John 14, verse 15, and verse 21. You might like to read out this first part, uh, these two verses. Somebody got it? Like to read it out? Nice, loud, clear, sensorian voice. So, uh, you got it now? Okay, let me read it out. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then the next verse. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Okay. What is the test? What is the criteria of somebody who really loves God? He does what God says. Imagine a wife who's married to a husband. She says, I love you, but I'm not going to do anything you say at all. I really trust you, but forget it. Well, people think like that. You say, you could, oh yes, oh yes. And what do you do? Well, you can't do Why are you breaking everything God has said? Well, because I don't know. No, I don't know. I was in Florida in one of these Jesus, whatever year it is, and uh, Jesus 1880, Jesus 1984, that'll be a weird one, <laughs> Big Brother is watching me. Uh, I was there and uh, teaching a uh, sex and dating seminar called uh, Three Encounters of the Close Time, and we talked about... <laughs> David and Bathsheba and uh, Amnon and Tamar and Shechem and Diana. But in this series, I did a, a thing on what the Bible says about sexual immorality and about fornication as being incompatible with Christianity and the people who are fornicated or sexually immoral in any way, shape or form will not be in the kingdom of God. And when I finished, I had a bunch of tracks and stuff there and a girl came and she said, can I help you carry those? I said, by all means. She was help me carry her out to this place where we're putting them all out. And on the way, she said casually, I'm a Christian, and I love God, but I shack up with my boyfriend all the time. I said, oh, really? And she said, yeah. She said, oh, I, you know, I don't see anything wrong with that. I'm a Christian, I love Christ. I said, uh, are you aware that the Bible says fornication is forbidden? She said, yes. She said, are you aware that to... A be sexually immoral is a violation of the commands of Jesus Christ? She said, yes. I said, then on the basis of this scripture, if you love me, keep my commandments, you love Jesus Christ. 
I have this pastor friend of mine who was with me, and he said, uh, Aha! Excuse me, let me have the button. Hit the punch button. What he said, you were not praying, were you? She said, yes, I was. But my prayers were never answered. He said, well, you were not reading the Bible. He said, yes, I was, and that's the problem. I knew what was supposed to happen, and it didn't happen to me. Well, it was two more left, tithing and, uh, <laughs> and witnessing. He said, were you out witnessing? She said, what too? Nothing happened. I didn't have anything I could tell people I'd be a hypocrite. Well, you can't say tithing. You weren't tithing. That was your problem. You'd only tithe. God would have been with So I said, I wonder if it's more basic than this. So I said, give me that. <laughs> so let me ask you a question. I said, uh, did anybody explain to you what it means to repent? She said, well, I heard the word. I said, do you know what it means? She said, no. So I explained to her for a few minutes what repentance is. She said, I never heard that. I said, well, cheer up. You never got saved. <laughs> isn't, isn't it wonderful that Christ didn't fail you, but that you failed to meet his condition? And that and she started crying over the phone. It was a neat thing. She said, nobody told me that. But she said, I think I knew that all along. And I said, well, that's a beautiful thing, honey, because you can get saved right now. If you really mean business with God and you do say goodbye to your whole rotten self-centered life, then God will change you and you have real salvation. You have something to talk about, you'll have somebody to pray to and the Bible will become real. But you'll match what it says. And then you should have seen the phone bank. It lit up. Like the deck of the Enterprise, man. It's like this. And people called in from all over the show. Hey, that's what happened to me and all of this. You know how much counterfeit conversion that goes on today in the Christian church? They understood it a hundred years ago and they preached against it. We don't. We just think it's because people haven't advanced enough in the Christian life. They're little backslidden. The truth is, many of them have never even slidden forth. That's called love. Now, that's so fundamental. Now, I might, I bet we could go through the Bible. It's such a big book. There's 66 books and thousands of verses. And I bet we could go through the Bible on our knees together and not agree with everything. But I do we have no right. Not to love each other. And uh, that's my test. I met a big Russian guy one time, and I was in Taiwan, in uh, Switzerland. This guy was, you know, Russian. They always oh, said, I know what they feed him in Russia, man. <laughs> but he came across and he hugged me. I didn't know any Russian that said, Bob, you're a neat. And uh, he hugged me, man. It was so neat. He said, Frightening and crunch, you know. It was uh, love at first sight, man. We're one in the family. We knew without language, without common concepts of anything. Common bond with love. That's where it starts. That's where it all begins. Right there. Okay? Now, that's one. Two. Secondly, we need wisdom. Now, twice this morning and once last night, prayer has been made. We need a deposit of power and wisdom in our lives. And this wisdom is tremendously important. Why? Because we need, as a race, a source of truth, of reliable guidance that will always be available in any language at any age. So we know what is real. Now, one of the tragedies that has happened in our time is what we could call mediated experience. I have a 
little book, it's a radical book, should be read by every Christian, Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television. And uh, it's, a, it's a book that analyzes what is happening to our experience through the tube. And one of the things it deals with is mediated experience. To look at a wood on television in your quasar, uh, black <laughs> matrix, uh, automatic fine-tuning control, to look at wood is not the same as walking in the wood. To have a mediated experience is look at something and say, hey, I'm in it because I experienced it, but you're not. Quite different. So, one of the tragedies of today is that we have been cut out of personal experience of things. Um, and one of the interesting things he discusses is a child growing up in a city who had never seen a farm and never seen uh, oranges or apples growing or something like that would be quite at liberty to ask the question, how did the storm make the apple? Because they've never seen an apple growing. You can say it grew on a tree. And you could say it came from outer space in a UFO. And the point is, the kid wouldn't know any different. Because they've never seen an apple growing. They've never seen trees there with buds and flowers and stuff. All they know about apples is what you give to them in, in print or in television or radio. Apples grow on trees. Apples come from UFOs. Change the thing and the reality change. We need a source of wisdom. How do you get past an era of media manipulation where people lie to you? I have some friends who are missionaries in Vietnam. There was some Newsweek writer there. The missionary was there, he saw it happen, the Newsweek writers wrote it down. Then finally got a copy of News, the Newsweek article describing those events. It was totally different. And the missionary said to the reporter, who's still there, what is this? This isn't the way it happened. The guy said, well, you've got to sell. Now, what is that? That's George Orwell, 1984. Rewrite history to fit whatever you like. So you can see why people are paranoid today. How do you know what is true? How can you tell what is true? And because of that, everybody and their uncle has come flying to the rescue. Scientology, S. Arcane, mind dynamics, you know, stretch your mind, find truth. A Rosicrucian society, you know, everybody and their uncle is coming in on this. We need wisdom and give you more ridiculous things. It's got to be a source of wisdom. Now, the Bible is so strong on this that it sets it, when you become a Christian, above everything else to see as Christian. So it says this, Proverbs 3, 5 through to 6. Proverbs 3, 5 through to 6. And verses 13 and 15. Now those of you new Christians here, here's a good way to write these down. Proverbs 3, 5 through to 6, 13 and 15. What do you do? Then you have to put those little dots in there. Dot, dot. Drive people crazy. And that, that, that. Put it up there. Here's what that says. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. And then it goes on and says, Happy is the man that finds wisdom, 
and the man that gets understanding. For she is more precious than rubies, and all the things that you can desire are not to be compared with her. In the book of Proverbs, which is written primarily to young men, though there are instructions for young women in there too, there are two women. One is a, a, called a strange woman, who is your average everyday hooker, and then on the other side you have wisdom, who is also a woman. And it's a courtship. It is uh, two women vying for an effect, the affection of a young man. And this strange woman, the hooker, will kill you. And what she represents is satanic wisdom. She gives you all of these plausible arguments why you should sell your soul to her. The scripture says you don't know that her house is the way to hell. And she dwells with the dead. And on the other hand, wisdom is represented as pleading in the marketplace. Come, listen to me. And then people go past and go hit on these hookers. See, like tying up with wisdom. There's two women. And the whole first, maybe 10, 12 chapters of Proverbs deal with those two, both making a play for a life. So using it as a parable, these two things, wisdom, a woman, is like God speaking to you. And this prostitute looks very much like wisdom that will kill you. So there are two kinds of wisdom in the world. There is God's wisdom, which brings life and beauty and love, and another kind, which looks very much like the first one, has plausible arguments, but you kill Okay, so we'll say this. Uh, wisdom is the most important thing next to becoming a Christian, when you become a Christian, you are to seek wisdom from God. All right, now I'm going to give you these two things, and I'm going to put them together like this. And a couple of very interesting things come out of this. Before we finish this first session, just like this. The first one is the word holy has two different meanings depending on whether you come from the east or from the west. You come from the east. The word holy means wise. A holy man is a man who is wise. A holy man is a man who has perception, who is a person who is informed on the true nature of reality. A holy man is a wise man. So salvation to the East is realization of truth or self-realization. To realize that you are God, one with God, is a holy man. An Eastern holy man may not necessarily be nice. Over half of the how many are there? 330 million gods in India are ugly. They are dangerous. There's Krishna, the creator, and there's Shiva, the destroyer. And you can't, you know, being a holy man doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a nice man. You don't have to be morally good man. You're just wise. In the West, however, holy tends to mean good. And, uh, Usually with a bit of a sneer, meaning naively good. He's a good holy man. Eric Burden and the Animal, Sky Pilot, Vietnam Chaplain. Going out, praying over the boys before they kill a gook for Christ. A good holy man. Kind of with a sneer, like, he's good, but only because he never ran into anything else. 
That's what the word holy means. You know what the word holy in the Bible means? It is neither eastern nor western. Not God to love the eastern world. God sent not his son to the western world to condemn the western world. The Bible, holy, means both loving and wise. And when God says, I want you to be holy like I am holy, he's asking you for a twofold thing. One, to love in the same way that he loves, and two, to have the same wisdom as he gives. None of us will ever, of course, have exactly the same intelligence as God, if he's infinite, and we're finite. We will not love as purely and perfectly and wholly as God is, because he is again infinite, but we can love the same way. We can have the same wisdom as he gives it to us. All right? Now, on the board, I've given you the two essential conditions of happiness. So we can boil all this down to here and we'll say this. If you do not know how to have real love and real wisdom in your life, you will never be happy. These are the two essential conditions of happiness, of peace, of unity, of harmony, of agreement. You went out on the street, you took a hundred people, who are old enough to know what you're talking about and young enough not to be cynical and spit in your eye and go on. And you ask them, what do you want most in life? I bet you about 80% of them would say one of those things or derivatives thereof. What do you want most in life? Well, I'd like to be happy. That's what I'd do. What do you want most in life? I wish that the nations of the world would come to some form of agreement. What do you want most in life? I wish there was peace on earth and goodwill among men. What do you want most in life? Well, I wish that our family could come back into harmony. That's what I wish most in life. And on the board are the two essential conditions of peace, happiness, unity. And without these two things, you will not have those things. Let me explain. If we don't love each other, and let's put love like this, let's draw it up as common call it permanent selfishness. We, unselfish is not really a good word for Bible agape because it sort of, as Lewis points out, it sort of looks like what you go without, where love is positive. Love is not a negative thing, what I don't do, it's more what I do do. Unselfishness, it's what I went without in order. That's not the Bible emphasis, it's what you do, positive. The common unselfishness. Can you see how there'll be no harmony as long as people love each other, love themselves supremely and don't care too much about them? What if you really lived as if you were God? Nobody else in the world was important except you. What if you thought? If you saw a guy walking down the street here, husband's street, with his hand in his vest like this, with a little halo stuck up here on a wire, dressed in white, saying, I am God, kiss my foot. It would be difficult to get on with this man. Especially if you thought, no, no, he's not God, I'm God. So many, many thinkers across the world have realized that unless you found some way to get rid of selfishness, you'd never bring the world into harmony. 
Last time I was back in New Zealand, which is about a month ago, I had the neatest opportunities, one I've been thinking about for about five or six years. We have a young man in New Zealand who is our Alp Sleeper, our Jerry Rubin, our um, Tom Hayden, uh, all rolled into one. This guy is probably the major figure among the youth culture who is a political radical. He's a committed Marxist. He has been so most of his life. All his family are committed Marxists. He comes from a long line of committed Marxists. He knows every major political radical nation. Here's a guy who calls strikes. He can just call a strike and rupture the whole nation, all the bad stuff. I mean, he's 32 years old. He's an And for years, uh, I led to the Lord a guy who's a family friend. And this guy had no Christian acquaintances at all. All of his friends were Marxists or Greeks or Surfies. Or, so he didn't have any Christian friends at all. He just stayed witnessing to his other friends and stuff. Just, you know, bought them stuff and helped them in that. So he's the only Christian. No, they don't know any other Christians personally. And uh, this friend of mine kept saying, I want you to go and uh, talk to Tim, you know. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'd love to Make sure it comes from him. I want him to not go over and say, Hey, Tim, you're not saved. You need to the gospel. Because he's had, he's attacked preachers and he's gone into, let me tell you what he did with a friend of mine. He's a preacher. The guy had a big peace rally. A preacher friend of mine had a big peace rally. So he got 50 markers filled up all of the front rows. And he said, I listened to the guy's speech. He had speech. enjoyed the speech about an hour. And then he gave this, he invited people to come up to the front who wanted to get saved. So he said, the moment he said, you want to come up to the front? He said, all 50 of us stood up, giving up peace signs and all marched forward in there. You can imagine what that did to an evangelist. See? And then of course all the ushers on the front who are supposed to, you know, they trained ushers who take the people who are the inquirers. What do you do with 50 Marxists march forward chanting, peace now, peace, you know, and this. So this one poor Asher man, he sees Tim coming up and, you know, he knows who he is, no, number one radical figure. So he says, you, you stop right there. You know, and the guy says, he says, I love confrontation because it brings out the two characters. And he said, when he said stop right there, of course, I kept coming. And I said, you stop there or you've had it. So he said, of course, I came on. And he said, I, I shouldn't have pushed him and panicked the poor guy, I guess. But he said, he punched me. <laughs> Ooh, Christian gospel in action. Can't stop you, we'll kill you. Ha! And he said, I fell on the ground screaming, ah, ah, the Christians have killed me. And I said, I made a lot of noise. I was half prepared for it and didn't really hurt. But he said, I wanted everybody to know. So that's the kind of guy. We don't mess with him in evangelistic senses. But he called me up. I was only back for three weeks last time. He called me up and said, tell that preacher friend of yours that I want to discuss some philosophical questions with him. So I said, and he prayed and went up and put a big cheesecake for his family and arrived. He's a worker, very hard-working guy. Works 16 hours a day, mixing concrete. He's not a heavy person in a shed, you know. He's a but he's out there, rolls out with his, you know, in his rowboat to stop the nuclear submarine coming in with his kids, and, you know, camps up on the hill for five months as a protest to Parliament for Maori land, and he's this kind of guy. 
So I went over there at uh, about quarter to seven, stayed till 11.30. And what I was seeing was a man whose entire philosophical premise was starting to break down. Do you know why he was a Marxist? He was a 60-year-old 60, 60 in his mind, romantic Marxist. That one day communism would bring all the world into unity, where everybody would have the same, that people would share together, there would be no more wars, it would eliminate selfishness from society. You know what was shocking him? He was one of the first guys who went into China when it opened in 1976 with the People's Working Party, and he went right through and said all things. What shocked him is that the communists were fighting the communists. Couldn't understand it at all. The shattering of the dream. Like God coming down, you find out he's the devil. It's totally destroyed him. And it, you know what the last thing he said to me? Me. He said, I would like to see. Because we talked about the Christian kingdom. He'd point out inconsistencies with the church, and I'd say, well, that's all right, you know. I see those. I've got to preach against those too. No big deal. God sees them. He's against them too. But I said, you can't say that about Christ. You can't say that about his kingdom. This is what it looks like. He got more and more excited. You know what the last thing he said? I would like to see a Christian nation. But he came. I said, you and me are working for the same thing. I said, you are a prophet waiting to get saved. <laughs> and I said, will you come back again? I said, I still will. We'll come back and do it again. Now, isn't that exciting? Here's a number one political figure that God is really dealing with because his philosophy doesn't match his, his heart. His heart is to see people love each other. And he said, you know why I like calling bus strikes? Because the people have got to work for 20 years and it's not I pull a bus truck, suddenly people have to say, hey, where do you get to work? Can I get a ride with you? What's your name, by the way? You know, he said, that's my last minute. How many people in the world are like that? They know that the problem of the world is selfishness. They want to see it eliminated. Well, that's Marx. Karl Marx said the problem of the world is selfish, and the only way to change it is change the economic environment. He was wrong. He died selfish. What's happening when the communists are fighting the communists is selfishness. So that economic change, whether it's from Maoist, see, China was a big one, not Russia. Russia had collapsed. Russia got decadent. But China, China was the thing. You know, what do you say about China? It's called the death of the vision. And then you could look at at Buddhism. You can go right away from Western economic systems, you go to Buddhism. Buddha said the problem with people is that they have an ego. And if you don't get rid of the ego of their self, then they wouldn't clash with each other. If you think you're yourself, and I'm self, 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 self versus self, see? If you can bust the self, get rid of the self, then you wouldn't have any more conflict. He came up with the Eightfold Path and dissolution of ego. Get rid of that. You know what people have done with Buddha? They make statues out of him. He would, he would kick them all down if he was alive today. The one thing he hated was the exaltation of individual circles. There they are, fat Buddhas, all over the place. Brother, he would hate that. He went out to find out how to be unselfish, leaving his wife and children forever. And died selfish, still looking. There are millions of people who follow his system. I think somehow to get rid of selfishness by getting rid of the ego. 
I have a way to get rid of selfishness. Bring two people together, they quarrel them, they get rid of their ego. You shoot them first. You boil them down in chemical. <laughs> you agitate it together until it's a molecular mix and you've got perfect unity. No ego. You lose the personality. Understand that one. All right. That's half of it. Can you see if the world really gave up its selfishness, that would be a tremendous step forward in solving conflicts of the world. You give up yourself. Then that's a fundamental step for getting rid of your own personal conflict and sense. As long as you live to please yourself, I promise you a life of conflict. You'll have it with yourself, you'll have it with others, and worst of all, you'll have it with God. You died to take selfishness out of the heart of the universe. Is it enough just to love each other? Yes, it is, but how do we know if we really are loving each other? It's wisdom something. For instance, it is possible for us to hold hands and think we are one in the spirit, but your hands get sticky after a couple of days. And in order for real harmony and real agreement, there must be a common understanding. And that is why in history there's never been a revival, in Tozer's words, without reformation. Whenever God has changed a nation, revival being a rebirth of love, the people who understand what they ought to do are not doing it, reformation is a new understanding or a fresh understanding of the nature and character of God, of man, and salvation. And so when we're working in areas like this, which always of necessity become sometimes controversial because they have to challenge accepted concepts of what God is like, I wouldn't mind sticking with current prevailing concepts of God if we're in the middle of a revival. But if we're not, if we're in the middle of one of the greatest times of backsliding in all of the West, what do we do? You don't say God is at fault, and that's the reason why we're here. You say our understanding of him has got some serious defects in it, and if correct indeed, we will see the results of a birth, of new holiness. I was with a pastor yesterday, just before I flew down, and the pastor, lovely guy, godly guy, his, his father, his kind of guy spends 18 to 20 hours, uh, or 18 to 20 days at a time in prayer and fasting, Godly, godly man. Miss Pastor was in a church there and he started asking some questions about the heathen and stuff. And he said, uh, Do you believe the heathen are lost? And I said, Oh, yeah, no, I sure do. And then I went to him somewhat. And he said, Oh, I'm so relieved to hear that because somebody told me you didn't. I said, What? Can I have this guy in the congregation? He said, Winky Freddy does not believe that the heathen are really lost. I said, where did you get that from? He says, well, he said, you got it from your book. I said, have you ever read any of my book? Yeah. I said, have you ever seen that then? He said, no. I said, I got a whole chapter on why they are lost. Now, how can a person read plain English that I wrote for 12-year-olds especially and come up with the exact opposite? Because we see things, we go, aha, the exact opposite. Just like I always thought. Now, what is that? That's his yellow brain to me happened to our heads? You think we're getting smarter? I think we're getting dumber. It's dumb old macroevolutionary theory, you know, we crawled out of an amoeba and we weren't anything. Now we have giant brains. Baloney we do. You go back to the founders and the writers of the Constitution of this country, they had more brains in their finger than most of our university students do. 
You want an example of that in the Christian world? Have any of you ever read Finney's Systematic Theology? It's about this thick. When I was in Bible college, somebody gave me a sentence, Finney's, it was couched in legal language. It was couched like that, so there's no possible way to misunderstand it. You know how lawyers write. I'm the third instant, the fourth, you know, and they the whole page to make sure you cannot misconstrue their language. Finney wrote a sentence that's important in legal language. It took me half an hour to analyze this sentence. And I thought it was pretty forgiving. Guy said, what does this mean? I get, oh, well, why don't you read it? Why don't you read it? So I did. I went, out there. what does this mean? Broke the whole thing down. And finally I said, oh, that's precise. But rather, that was solid. Why am I telling you this? Because Catherine Booth, the mother of the Salvation Army, mastered self-finished systematic theology when she was 12 years old. Wrote tracts when she was 13, had to publish them under another name, man's name, because nobody would ever read a tract written by a woman, let alone a 13-year-old woman, which were published by the tens of thousands who used mightily in the Sandwich Movement in England. Was she a rare genius? No. She was not even thought of as a great genius in the time, just a normal sister. We are getting out of frame. And one of the new things God can do in good faith is start putting your brain back together. Let me say this. God loves you, and he wants your brain to be unscrambled. To be holy is not only to be good, it is to be wise. How often has the Christian church been represented as a bunch of good, dumb people? Right? Get saved and be dumb. Most of you get to God, but dumber you will become you really get close to God, you'll be totally dumb. I'm really saved. What is this? I used last time I was here, I'll use it again. Remember Kung Fu? It was a time when David Carradine is stringing this bow that nobody else can string and shooting it into a tree 300 yards away in the dark for meditative purposes, of course, totally non-violent reason. Tree didn't think that, but... <laughs> And up comes a cowboy who is obviously from the Bible Belt, got his hat on like, you know, like uh, Hawk and Bonanza, and hung out, really dumb, and he comes up and sees this, you know, and he looks and he says, how did you do that? And Carradine, you know, says, it is not done. The Bible college student goes, I didn't understand. And then the wisdom of the East. When you do not understand, if I said that, man, I said, young people, when you do not understand, then you will know. You fall out of your chair. Laugh, man, your teeth would chip the front seat. You go, ah, 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 that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. When you do not understand, then you will know. Because David Carradine is such a good actor, he will go, isn't that heavy? When you don't understand, then you will know. I led a young lady to Jesus some years back. She came up and she said to me, look, she said, I used to live with a guy for a number of years. Stab all night, philosophical. It's taught all kinds of incredible things. So she said, I just got saved. And she said, I went back to see him again. 
just curious. She said, I listened to him. He had three or four years more to think about it. He said, he was the dumbest person I've ever seen. He wandered all over the place. And I said, what has happened to his brain? I suddenly realized he was saying exactly what he said before. Now I understood for the first time. You know what God does? He reorders your mind. That is part of the Christian gospel. It begins with a little thing called metanoia, which is to repent, which means to change your mind, which also means not only change your lifestyle, but change your whole way of thinking. Dump your noodle for brains and replace them with some godly cells. The renewing of your mind. Remember Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren and sisters, this is the Pratney advanced version, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your irrational service, reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world. Don't let the world into its own mold, but be transformed or transfigured, metamorphosed, same word used of Jesus when he's gone, like we talked about last night, by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Closing prayer. Now, Father, we thank you for love, that there is love at the heart of the universe. It's not just chance and time and matter and stars and galaxies, formless that have no meaning to us at all, but there is love at the heart of the universe. That the Father loves the Son, that the Son loves the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit loves and is loved by the Father and the Son. And because there exists communication and love, the heart of the universe, there can have, uh, there can be communication down from the divine realm into our own hearts and our own lives, and we can love each other. We can express to each other this divine love, and we can show the world that you're real. Lord, we thank you too for this wisdom. You haven't left us as often. You haven't cut us off from understanding. You've not come to take away our brains. You've come to give us wisdom beyond that which the world can ever give. When the world by its wisdom did not know God, you've come. We who believe the foolishness of preaching to give us minds and hearts adequate and beyond the telling. We bless you for the word of knowledge, for the word of wisdom, for the discerning of spirits. Bless you for all of the scriptures that are able to make us wise unto salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. We ask you, Lord God, to help us to love you with all our hearts and all our minds and all our souls and all our strength. For Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, there's part one. Part two will be coming up next week. If you need more information about these kinds of things, don't forget to visit the moh.org website, Ministry of Help's website, moh.org. We have free downloads of uh, printed materials, more uh, videos that you can watch, and, of course, links to these podcasts. So anytime you want to find more material, just check it out. And thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time on the MOH Podcast.